may be seated. Being a child of my age, the morning newspaper ritual at my house involves a cup of coffee and opening the daily Memphian app on my phone, which is where on Wednesday I saw that the final lineup for the Beale Street Music Festival has been announced. I'm sure all of you here were thrilled to hear that Weezer and Smashing Pumpkins and Toad the Wet Sprocket are coming. I do feel like those bands should mean more to me than they do, having graduated college in 1990, but they're not the ones that excite me. I want to hear that retro soul singer Leon Bridges, folk rocksters, the Lumineers, and Avett Brothers, and plain old folkster Patty Griffin. I'm dying to see Brittany Howard of the Alabama Shakes, and Bobby Rush is going to be in the blues tent, as will Keb Moe and Taj Mahal, both of whom I saw in Eureka Springs about 150 years ago. But guess who else is coming to Memphis in May? Mavis is coming, y'all. Mavis Staples. Now, I do hate it when preachers name drop in their sermons, so I'm glad I don't have to listen to what I'm about to say. <laughs> but I kind of think Mavis Staples got me this job. I did not list her as a reference per se, but Hall Gardner was chair of the search committee, and I know for a fact his interest in the guy from Little Rock perked right up when he heard we'd brought Mavis to Christ Church for a concert. <laughs> and friends, October 11, 2011, truly was a glorious night to be in church. Mavis turned 80 this year. When she arrived to warm up for the show eight years ago, she was recovering from a recent knee surgery. In quintessential rector fashion, I had very little to do with getting Mavis to Little Rock, but I did get to be the one who introduced her to that sold-out crowd and watched from the second row, which meant I got to see what almost no one else could see that night. I saw the sharp wince of pain on Mavis's face as she mounted each of the three steps up into the chancel, and then I watched her take a breath, gather herself, lay her cane on a stool nearby, and then commence to bring that house of God completely down for the next 90 minutes. She sang a bunch of those old Staples singers' songs that night, most of which had been recorded by Al Bell for Stax Records here in Memphis. She sang Respect Yourself and I'll Take You There, anthems of the civil rights movement, and beloved by Pop's Staples friend, Dr. King. She also sang, Why Am I Treated So Bad? A song her father was inspired to write after watching nine unimaginably brave black students walk through a gauntlet of shouts and hatreds and into Little Rock Central High School in 1957. Our son Alden and his friend Walt, who were both in a punk band at the time, and Central High School sophomores, sat in the row in front of us. And as the last encore closed, Long-haired Walt turned around and said, Mr. Walters, I think I've just been to church. Now I tell you all of this now to say that there are people in this world who have experienced great loss and injustice and pain and to carry these experiences with them into the making of their art. But of these, there are also just a few who do so in a way that transcends their suffering without denying it 
and transforms it into something new. To watch Mavis Staples set aside the pain in her body that night and sing those exultant songs that arose from all the wrongs people of color have endured in this country was more than a lesson on what it takes to be a great artist. I think it was a lesson on another way to live. Jesus' great lesson on another way to live is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He walks up the mountain, sits down at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, and finishes the whole thing by the end of chapter 7. He tells us that people whose lives seem less than lucky are actually the blessed and beloved ones. He teaches about prayer and fasting and where our true treasure should lie. He shows us the way of nonviolent resistance, turning the other cheek, of giving with no expectation of return. He says we simply cannot serve God in wealth and that it does us no good whatsoever to worry about tomorrow. He packs a lot into one sermon, probably because he doesn't waste a chapter talking about all the music he likes. But in today's portion of the sermon, he seems to come down hard on the pretty good people of the world. People who haven't killed anybody. People who are not cheating on their spouses. Men who aren't sending wives away into a culture in which they had nearly no power or status and little means of support. He seems to be taking the pretty good people down a notch or two or maybe ten. Because by the time he's finished this little section and told us to let our yeses be yes and our noes to be no, we find the pretty good people in the same camp as murderers and adulterers and probably by extension with the committers of whatever sins you happen to find hardest in this world to forgive. He seems to be putting pretty good, the pretty good in league with those beyond whatever pale we've erected to define what is moral and respectable and decent. Well, how in the world is this helpful to someone not trying to be perfect, but just someone trying to be pretty good, lead a pretty good moral life, a person who maybe even wants to follow this Jesus and find the abundant life he said he was going to show us? Does Jesus want to make us better people by making us feel worse about ourselves? Maybe. But it also may be that we simply cannot live the way of Jesus if we think we can leave our own pain and brokenness behind. Put another way, as the humorist Robert Benchley said, there are just two kinds of people in this world. Those who believe there are just two kinds of people in this world and those who don't. <laughs> and Jesus seemed to be one of those who don't. He thought there was just one kind of people. Sinners like us. It's terrible news, right? I mean, maybe it's good news on a really bad day when we're feeling worthless, full of shame and guilt, and certain that if anybody really knew what the darker corners of our hearts were capable of imagining, they'd cast us straight away into the outer darkness. At least we'll have company. But maybe the rest of the time, we manage to pull off a believably decent life among the pretty good. Why lump us in with the, you know, the deplorables and all? Well, there's a lie I think we begin to believe from the time we have the sense, a sense of what fairness is. And the lie is that hypocrites lose the right to comment on the way things are. 
A hypocrite, after all, is somebody who says he believes one thing and does another. Well, I think Jesus may be saying that's the only kind of person there is. But it also happens to be just the kind of person he's come to redeem. And the redeeming wisdom of his teaching is that when we deny our own pain and brokenness and sin and failure and point to someone else or some other category of people, we just add alienation to the damage our sins have already done. If I justify my rage and indignation by saying, well, at least I haven't killed anybody, that justification is what allows the rage to keep simmering. And it does so by placing other human beings in a category I don't think I belong to myself. Judgment is not just one more sin Jesus warns us against. Judgment is how I add distance to the made-up moral space I think separates my sins from the sins of someone else. Sin's a separation already. Jesus won't have us adding the distance of judgment to that. Because the truth is, we will never help heal this world if we refuse to include ourselves within it. America's original sin of racism will never be healed as long as we believe racists are only people who use the N-word or vote for certain candidates or attend certain kind of rallies. A concept like implicit bias may seem like just a newfangled form of political correctness, but I'm coming to believe it is deeply consistent with the way Jesus taught us to understand sin. He said the stuff of murder is swirling around in all of us in our ordinary anger. The stuff of adultery swirls in all of us when another human being is reduced to the object of desire. And the stuff of racism and bigotry live in the same parts of my heart where my implicit responses to the world are formed long before my conscious mind begins to assure me that I'm so much better than all that. After all, the first priority of my rational mind will always be to justify myself to myself. We hear every day that we live in a deeply divided time. I've said it plenty of times in this pulpit. What we hear less often is that division is a symptom, not the disease. The disease is the same old sin that's infected this world since long before Jesus' time. It's a wound that goes all the way back to that garden when one human looked at another one and said, I think we all know the problem here is her. Jesus wants to show us another way. He wants to teach us the art of living in a broken world. And he insists that we can't live well if we deny a brokenness that all of us share. Because if we let our sins and pains separate us from one another and then add the separation of judgment to that, well, where it leaves us in the end is alone, which may be the actual hell Jesus wants us to avoid. Mavis didn't only sing those old Staples singer songs in Little Rock. She had just recorded an album with a youngster named Jeff Tweedy. He's a white guy, almost exactly my age, actually. Youngster's a matter of perspective, I guess. The song he wrote for Mavis was, You Are Not Alone. She sang, I'm with you. I'm lonely too. A broken home, a broken heart, isolated and afraid. Open up. 
This is a raid. I want to get it through to you. You're not alone. She got through all right. I'll never know what it's like to have spent eight decades in this world as an African-American woman. But when this woman, who I know carried pain in her body that night and surely carried wounds in her heart as well, when Mavis sang, I'm with you, I'm lonely too, we believed her. And a distance that seemed much older than any one of us may have closed at least a little bit right then.